So in Lesson 14, we saw the full significance of the cross now and eternally, how it opens the way to the Father and sets the pattern for our life now, life, our life of Christian love now. Right? It also means that Christians will be able to accomplish great works for Jesus today through his word and prayer and for his glory. And then we saw that far from being impoverished by the departure of Jesus, those who demonstrate their genuine love of Jesus by obedience will be privileged to have God dwelling in them. In Lesson 15, we learned that God's ultimate purpose for his people on earth is that they should bear fruit and so bring him glory. This should lead us to absolute dependence on Jesus and his words as our only source of true fruitfulness. We learn that the apostles' teaching about Jesus will always attract hostility from the world, but we should not cease to persevere in Christ even when this opposition is highly intense and comes from so-called religious people. We came to understand that Jesus is going to the Father is a good thing because the Spirit will be at work convicting the world on the basis of the apostles' message and believers will experience a genuine and lasting joy grounded in a new relationship with the Father. In Lesson 17, last week, we saw that Jesus' chief desire is for the Father's glory. This glory will fill the earth through the calling together of a people who know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And this calling is effected through the Son's work, the Apostles' message, and the believers' united witness. My aim for today is that we behold our true Adam, our great high priest, and the true king of the universe, who is completely in control of events and is prepared to die, even orchestrating his death on behalf of his people in order to save them from God's wrath and keep them for eternal life. So let's dig in here. We begin with the statement that Jesus finished his discourse and went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron. Kidron. Why did John bring that up? Kidron is a valley separating Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives on the east. It's dry except for the rainy winter season. King David crossed the Kidron. You may remember from Samuel last year when Absalom rebelled against him which is probably the reason that John provided that detail. It is the only mention in the whole New Testament of Kidron. Kings Asa, Hezekiah, and Josiah destroyed idols in the Kidron Valley. And then John tells us that they went across and then entered a garden. Matthew and Mark tell us that this garden was the Garden of Gethsemane, and that means oil press. It would have been an enclosed garden having walls, and an entrance. We don't know who owned the garden. Probably a wealthy patron of Jesus and his disciples. Most commentators see this garden scene as an allusion, a parallel to the scene in Genesis 3 that takes place in the Garden of Eden. So you recall that God created man and woman, male and female, in his own image and put them in this beautiful garden and he communed with them there And one day, the crafty serpent approached Eve and deceived her into disobeying God and taking of the tree 
uh, that forbidden tree and eating that fruit. And her husband, the cowardly wimp Adam, stands by, it says, and he ate with her, thus plunging humanity and all of creation into ruin. The Lord immediately reveals his plan to crush the serpent and his seed by sending a rescuer through the woman. And then over time, hundreds of years actually, God reveals through his prophets that rescuer to be a descendant of Abraham and King David. I've put a URL link for you there to an article that I read uh, last year in class about the historicity of Adam and Eve and why that is important. So then, Jesus of Nazareth, son of David, son of Abraham, son of Adam, son of God, leads his people, his disciples, to their usual getaway for prayer when they visit Jerusalem, fully knowing that Judas will guide the arresting party there. In the past, where he's, he avo- he's avoided capture, he's eluded his enemies, now he's walking right into their trap. Judas, the betrayer, brings with him at least 200 soldiers, at a minimum, they think, approved by Pilate, and an unknown number of Jewish temple soldiers sent by the chief priests and the Pharisees. This group represents the whole world being led by the evil one. They're carrying torches and lanterns and swords, expecting to have to chase Jesus and his followers throughout the countryside in the deep darkness because it's probably one-ish or so. How ironic, isn't it, that they're sent to apprehend the light of the world. Then starting in verse 4, this is where the story differs from the Genesis 3 story. Jesus, hearing the arresting party outside, guided there by Judas, who was possessed by that serpent of old, who is the dragon Satan himself, as we're told in Revelation. We're told in John 13, 27, he was possessed by Satan. We're told in 12 that he's the thief And then in 10.10, John tells us that he, through the words of Jesus, that this thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. So here he is, coming with this hundreds of people. We don't know how many exactly, but lots. So then our Lord, the last Adam, which is the way Paul refers to him in Romans 5, the door of the sheep, our good shepherd, goes out to meet the party. His sheep, his bride are inside and in need of protection. He does what Adam should have done for Eve. So then he asked them, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. His answer would have actually been the standard answer. These days in our ungrammatical American English, we would have said, that's me. (laughs) But it would really be correct to say, That's I, right? And he says, I am he. So it would have been the standard answer, and yet we know that John has been clearly revealing Jesus to be the great I am who spoke to Moses in the burning bush, who led the Israelites out of their captivity in Egypt, the central event of their history. 
Why does John mention that Judas is standing there? This is just my opinion. I did not read this anywhere. Judas is indwelt by the evil one, God's enemy and the enemy of mankind, the once glorious angel of God who had rebelled against him before the story of the Bible begins. Jesus displays his veiled omnipotence at this point to his rebellious creature. When he does so, hundreds of people fall to the ground. Let me read you what J.C. Ryle said. It's precious. (laughs) I cannot doubt that the thing here related was a great miracle. I have not the slightest sympathy with Alford, I guess a commentator, and others who try to explain it away partially by reminding us of the awe and reverence with a great and good man, uh, which a great and good man sometimes inspires in inferior minds. Such an explanation will never account for the fact here recorded that the band of Roman soldiers and the servants of the priests, in fact, the whole body of armed men who came to seize on our Lord, went backward and fell on the earth on hearing our Lord say, I am he. The Roman soldiers especially knew nothing about our Lord and have no cause to fear him. The only reasonable account of the events is that it was a miracle. It was an exercise for the last time of that same divine power by which our Lord calmed the waves, stilled the winds, cast out devils, healed the sick, and raised the dead. It was a miracle purposely wrought at this juncture in order to show the disciples and their enemies that our Lord was not taken because he could not help it or crucified because he could not prevent it, but because he was willing to suffer and die for sinners. He came to be a willing sufferer for our sins that the scriptures might be fulfilled. So they're getting up. Jesus repeats his question. Whom are you seeking? They're probably so rattled that they didn't put up any resistance when he commanded them to let his disciples go, fulfilling the scriptures for their protection. The commentators point out that this was a temporary physical protection because we know that almost all of them were martyred until the filling of the Holy Spirit, the sealing of their eternal protection and their empowering for their mission to the world. Then there's Peter. What was he thinking? Lashing out with a dagger against hundreds of men? He was indeed willing to lay down his life. But Jesus again reveals his determination to undergo his father's judgment against sin. That's what the cup of wrath means. John's only reference to that Old Testament metaphor. Jesus is going voluntarily. No one takes his life from him. There are so many things to see here. I picked two. Number one, miracles never create faith. We have a display of Jesus' omniscience. Luke tells us of the healing of Malchus's ear. Apparently it didn't make a difference to a lot of people. And then I also see Jesus, God the Son, who is about to be slain for mankind from the Father's wrath, fulfilling both sides of the covenant that God made with Abraham, the vision that he gave him in Genesis 15. You know that one where God told him, take several animals and cut them up in half and put them in a line, except he didn't cut the birds. And then God put him into a deep sleep, and Abraham sees the torch going through the animals. 
That's what I see here. Our covenant-keeping God about to go through the animals, keeping the covenant himself, and also being slain for the curse, for our not keeping it. So they arrest Jesus and they bind him and send him off to Annas. John has been setting us up to see the illegality of Jesus' trial all along. In chapter 5, after the healing of the, the lame man, when he healed on the Sabbath, it says they sought to kill him. And then after the resuscitation of Lazarus in chapter 11, when they, the Sanhedrin got together, and that's when Caiaphas's prophecy is made, it says that they plotted from that day forward to put him to death. There are so many illegal features of this trial. Phillips here has listed a few of them. Too numerous, he says, the the breaches of Jewish legal proceedings to be cited in detail. But the most prominent were Jesus was arrested without proper charges based on the witness of an accomplice who had been bribed. Jesus was tried at night, whereas the law required daytime proceedings for capital cases. And contrary to the law, the proceedings were held on the day before a feast. No testimony in favor of the accused accused was sought or permitted. Jesus was directly examined and called upon to testify against himself. And Jesus was convicted by a unanimous vote, which the Jewish legal rules considered evidence of a biased court. All of these were gross violations, but the last one is most pertinent. The Jewish system of law emphasized mercy and called on courts to do everything possible to exonerate the accused. The Jews' trial of Jesus was illegal precisely because it was conducted with no other aim than to unjustly convict Jesus and put him to death. William Hendrickson summarizes correctly, this is, in reality, no trial at all. It is murder. So who is this Annas guy? We know father-in-law to the current high priest. Well, he was appointed in 86 by Rome, but the predecessor to Pilate deposed him in AD 15 because he had become such a powerful man. Yet he retained his influence because his five sons, a son-in-law and a grandson, were all appointed high priests by Rome. Even until AD 41, he continued to control the position. How did he attain such power? I found a great sermon by Arturo Arzurdia III in, somewhere in Oregon. Um, he's, got, he's got great sermons. You can find a lot of them on, online. He was wealthy. He ran the temple concessions. Temple officers would find flaws in the animals being brought to sacrifice, forcing people to buy another one there. At an exorbitant price, of course. No Roman money, no foreign money was accepted, so they had to exchange money. (coughs) At an exorbitant exchange rate, of course. Jesus had disrupted this whole operation twice. So Annas grew to hate him. This was Israel's high priestly family. John intertwines the trials of Jesus and Peter, but we'll focus on Jesus' first. Anna starts off by asking about the disciples and the Jesus' teaching. He's probably wondering how many disciples there were, how pervasive Jesus' message had been, hoping to round them up and stomp them out after murdering Jesus. Jesus ignores that question and, in effect, protecting his disciples once again. And he says that his teaching has been open, 
The public message and the private one are no different. There's no insurrectionist revolutionary talk going on here. His statement is about calling witnesses for a plea. Is his, his statement about calling witnesses is a plea for fairness in the proceedings. And then, of course, one of the officers perceives this as being impertinent, impertinent, so he slaps him. And Jesus was not being impertinent. Neither did he turn the other cheek. Or did he? After all, he was about to go to the cross. Don Carson writes, um, Turning the other cheek without bearing witness to the truth is not the fruit of moral resolution, but the terrorized cowardice of the wimp. So Annas gets nowhere with Jesus and sends him off to Caiaphas. So there's Peter, standing before two high priests. The one is obviously a tool of the evil one and can obtain no benefit for Peter in his failure. The other is about to offer his spotless blood for him. Peter has been warming himself by the fire and lying while his faithful high priest stands alone in the cold, testifying to the truth. When the cock crows, Peter is crushed. Luke tells us that Jesus looked at him. I am not. I am not. I am not. The confession of an overly confident failure. I am the assertion of the faithful high priest. So then John omits the details of the trial before Caiaphas because the synoptic gospels have provided them and because he has already established the Jews' animosity towards Jesus. So he moves on to detail the trial before Pilate representing the evil worldly system where Caesar is proclaimed Lord of all. Pilate, the only other name, by the way, mentioned in the creeds, besides the name of Jesus, is the fifth prefect, was the fifth prefect of Judea. His tenure was from AD 26 to AD 30, 36. Josephus described in his history three incidents of Pilate's cruelty that aroused the hatred of the Jews. He was eventually recalled by Rome, and it is believed that he committed suicide. His headquarters were actually in Caesarea on the coast, but he would come to Jerusalem for the important holidays. The population would swell, and of course you know there were all these nationalistic feelings, and just to keep everything in order. So it says they brought brought Jesus to Pilate early in the morning. They think it was probably around 6, and that may seem a little strange. 6 o'clock in the morning, Pilate's up, ready to conduct a trial. Yes. Apparently, it was common practice for Romans to rise very early, get their work done, and then spend the rest of the day in leisure. So, Pilate goes out to them. He at least starts off with the intention of conducting a fair trial. He asks the Jews for a charge. Of course, he goes out to them because they wouldn't come into his residence for fear of becoming ritually unclean. Isn't that ironic? Another irony in this passage. They were about to be complicit in the murder of the Lord of glory, the true Passover Lamb of God, and they were concerned about becoming unclean in the home of a Gentile. Let me read what Calvin has to say 
about this part. And abstaining from all defilement, that being purified according to the injunction of the law, they may eat the Lord's Passover. Their religion in this respect deserves commendation. But there are two faults, both of them very heinous. I'm actually only going to read one. The first is they do not consider that they carry more pollution within their hearts than they can contract by entering any place, however profane. And the second is that they carry to excess their care about smaller matters and neglect what is the highest importance, what is of the highest importance. To the defiled and to unbelievers, Paul says, nothing is pure because their minds are polluted. But these hypocrites, though they are so full of malice, ambition, fraud, cruelty, and avarice, that they almost infect heaven and earth with their abominable smell, are only afraid of external pollutions. So then it is an intolerable mockery that they expect to please God, provided that they do not contract defilement by touching some unclean thing, though they have disregarded true purity. So then Pilate, in his, in his response to, you know, their response, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law, right? He is tacitly giving his consent for them to do with Jesus as they will. But I think they're afraid of the people and they prefer to have Rome execute him, thus fulfilling the prophecy in verse 32. Mm-hmm. So then he turns away from them, goes inside, and he sees Jesus. He says, you? Are you the king of the Jews? That's kind of the nature of the Greek there. This reminds me of Isaiah 53, 2. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide... No, 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 sorry. Uh, uh, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. You, of course, he might have had a black eye already starting. He had been up all night. He was tired. No form, no beauty, black eye, disheveled, tired. You, You're the king of the Jews. Jesus typically answers a question with a question. Carson says that Jesus can't answer Pilate's question unless he knows what is meant by it. Richard Phillips, this guy again, says, This answer is not an evasion, as it may seem, but an important point that Jesus needed to make. The issue was the perspective from which Pilate was asking the question. Was he confronting Jesus on the charge of setting up a worldly kingdom opposed to that of Caesar? In that sense, the answer would be no, for Jesus was not a rival to Pilate in Judea. But on the other hand, if the question was coming from the Jewish perspective, the answer must be yes. Jesus was the Messiah, the long-awaited king from the line of David. Pilate's reply, am I a Jew? reveals his total lack of interest in Jewish affairs. So he tries to probe further to get more information out of Jesus. What have you done? The translation of verse 26 
my kingdom is not of this world, has led to some misperceptions. Jesus does not mean that his kingdom is merely spiritual or it's in heaven and not for this world. Carson writes, both expressions mean that Jesus' reign does not have its source or origin in this world. The kingships of this world preserve themselves by force and violence, which is why Peter breaks out. If Jesus' kingship finds its origin elsewhere, it will not be defended by the world's means. And if it resorts to no force and no fighting, it is hard to see how Rome's interests are in jeopardy. It is important to see that Jesus' statement should not be misconstrued as meaning that his kingdom is not active in this world or has nothing to do with this world. John certainly expects the power of the inbreaking kingdom to affect this world. Pilate picks up on Jesus' admission and probes further. So you are a king. Jesus continues and is more or less frank with Pilate as he was with the Samaritan woman and the man born blind. He was born to be king who brought truth to the world. The man on trial is inviting his judge to follow him. Pilate realizes that the Jews have brought an innocent man to him and concocted trumped-up charges against him. Pilate views Jesus as no more than a philosopher king. He obviously doesn't recognize Jesus' voice calling out to him, and so he turns away in frustration. He renders his judgment to the Jews as not guilty, and we'll, next week we'll continue and see he does that two more times. And he makes a step towards appeasement by offering to release a prisoner for the holiday, probably hoping they'll seek Jesus' release. Instead, they cry out in favor of a murdering insurrectionist whose name means son of the father. Sisters, this is our true Adam, our protector. This is our true and great high priest who makes intercession for us before God by bringing his own spotless blood into the Holy of Holies so that we can be adopted back into God's family. This is the true king of the universe who rules with truth, justice, peace, joy, and love. I would like you to close your eyes as I read this poem that Indelible Grace made into a song. Kevin Twitt, we arranged it. And it's on uh, 6 by Miss Ora Rowan. I just want you to adore him as I read. Hast thou heard him, seen him, known him? Is not thine a captured heart? Chief among 10,000, own him. Joyful, choose the better part. Idols, once they won thee, Charmed thee, lovely things of time and sense. Gilded thus does sin, does sin disarm thee, honeyed, lest they turn thee thence. What has stripped the seeming beauty from the idols of the earth? Not a sense of right or duty, but the sight of peerless worth. Not the crushing of those idols with its bitter void and smart, but the beaming of his beauty the unveiling of his heart. 
Who extinguishes this their taper till they hail the rising sun? Who discards the garb of winter till the summer has begun? Tis the look that melted Peter. Tis the face that Stephen saw. Tis the heart that wept with Mary can alone from idols draw. Draw and win and fill completely till the cup o'erflow the brim. What have we to do with idols who have companied with him? Our glorious triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we adore your matchless name. You are our true husband, shepherd, friend, who will protect us from ultimate harm. You are our great high priest who became one of us so that you could offer up your own precious blood to wash us clean of our rebellion and propitiate your own wrath against our sin. You are the one, the only true king of the universe who is reigning over all things even now, but who will one day re-enter your creation to restore it to the glory you originally intended. Help us by your indwelling Holy Spirit to maintain a vision of your beauty so that we will love you and live to please you and tell others the truth about who you are. We pray to you, our dear Father, in the name of the eternal Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.